The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. We know that the first 18 verses of uh, John's gospel uh, focused upon Christ, upon his eternal nature and his divine glory. Now, beginning with verse 19, we'll see that the focus shifts to John the Baptist and his ministry, uh, specifically his role as one who announced the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And we know uh, what this looks like because you perhaps attended a big concert or a special event and you're there to see the main attraction, but you know that before the main attraction uh, comes out, what happens? First, there's usually an introduction, right? Somebody that goes before the person or the group and, and announces the fact that they are, they are next and they're going to come out. And that's what we see here with John the Baptist. He, in essence, is announcing the main attraction. He is announcing the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Israel and for the whole world. And that's what we read here in our text this morning, beginning at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So who was John the Baptist, and why is so much written about him in the Gospels? Well, we know from all four Gospels that uh, John the Baptist uh, grew up uh, simultaneously uh, with Christ in the same time period. And we know that John the Baptist had godly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both were from the tribe of Levi. Zechariah and Elizabeth, we read, were elderly and childless which for them was heartbreaking because they wanted children. One day, when Zechariah was in the temple in Jerusalem performing his priestly duties, the angel Gabriel appeared and spoke to him, saying, and, and listen to the prophecy that Zechariah received. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Months later, after this prophecy, the angel Gabriel also visited Mary and told her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. So these two pregnant women, these relatives, when they met later, Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, she was speaking there of John, leaped for joy. See here, there was a connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. It was a connection that existed between the two of them even before they were born. That the Holy Spirit had created a bond between John and Jesus while they were still in their mother's wombs. Two children, roughly the same age, and we see that even in their mother's wombs, there was this intimate connection between the two. This is an excellent example in the Bible of why we believe a life does not start only when a baby is born, but life starts in the womb at conception. And so this is why we believe that to abort an unborn child is to abort a life. We see this so clearly in the early narratives about John and Jesus. They had a connection that existed even before they were born. The Holy Spirit had created a bond between the two of them. And so, as they grew roughly the same age together, childhood, and later into adulthood, they were each born for the purpose of serving God, yet serving God in two very different ways. John was born for the purpose of announcing Jesus' ministry, Jesus, we know, was born to die for the sins of his people. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see the testimony of John about Jesus. Now that word testimony, martyria, uh, means witness. It's like a, a person giving testimony before a judge. John, see, gave testimony about Jesus. He spoke the truth about Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at three of John the Baptist's sayings in this passage in order to learn what true faith looks like. We're going to study the testimony of a true believer. And we read in verse 19 of our passage, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, we know that these religious leaders were most likely sent by the Sanhedrin, 
the supreme council of the Jews in this time. And John the Baptist, when he began his ministry, he was creating uh, quite a fuss, especially with the fact that he was calling not just Gentiles to repent and be baptized, but he was calling Jews to repent and be baptized. Jews believe that we're the children of Abraham. We don't, we don't need to be cleansed of our sins. Um, but John was saying, no, you too need to be made ready for the coming of the Messiah. And so this delegation was sent to investigate John to see what he was about, to see uh, what his baptism involved. So they came and asked John the Baptist, who are you? And we read that John confessed, in verse 20, I am not the Christ. That was John's direct first confession about himself. I am not the Christ. Now, what does Christ mean? What is John referring to here? Well, Christ means anointed one. It's actually from the Hebrew verb mashach, which means to anoint. Uh, We actually get the English word Messiah from that Hebrew word, a verb. And in order for us to fully understand the title, we actually have to look back to the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the people that were anointed, uh, they were the people who were called by God to serve him in a specific way. They were the prophets, priests, and kings that God called uh, to uh, serve him. Israel's prophets, priests, and kings were go-betweens. They were intermediaries between God and the people. We know, for example, that the prophets, whom we're learning a lot about in our adult Sunday school class, they spoke from God to the people. They brought a message from God. Priests spoke from the people up to God by offering sacrifices to God on behalf of of his people. And, And kings... They ruled Israel in God's name, under God's authority. Think of Saul, David, and and Solomon. So many kings that Israel had over the centuries. And God anointed the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. He anointed them in order that they might be able to accomplish these very important mediatorial roles. And this usually involves some sort of ceremony in which the person being called to the office, had oil poured or uh, smeared on their heads. And, you know, what was, you might ask, what was the significance of of such a ceremony of having oil poured on your head? Well, it was significant in two uh, very specific ways. It was first a declarative act. It was a, a physical way of showing that the person and all of Israel, uh, showing that person and all of Israel that they were now authorized by God to be either a prophet, a priest, or a king. It was declarative. You know, uh, this is very common in, in our day, in our culture. We don't anoint with oil, but we do have many ceremonies that have a similar declarative significance. Uh, for example, Every new president of the United States uh, takes a presidential oath of office, and it's very public, and it's it's a declarative act announcing to our nation and to the world that this is now our president. So 
So it was declarative. Secondly, anointing in the Old Testament was also an equipping act. It was equipping. Because uh, God used this external sign of oil being smeared or poured on the head as a sign of the inward reality that he was working by his Holy Spirit in that person's heart and mind. You know, it's like for us, the sacraments, they're physical, outward signs of what God is doing inwardly in our hearts. And so it's an equipping act. And so when this team came to investigate John the Baptist, what did they want to know first and foremost? They wanted to know, are you the anointed one? Are you the Christ? Are you the promised one sent from God? And what was John's response? See, John said adamantly, I am not the Christ. John says, the Christ is here. We see in the text, he's already in the world, as he notes in verse 26. But he says, I am not him. Friends, you and I need to join John in saying, I am not the Christ. You know, in our lives, we all run into the danger of thinking that uh, we are the center of the universe, uh, that everything depends upon us, that uh, our ministries and our successes are all dependent upon how we do and, and how we perform. And so I want to invite you to regularly profess this truth. I am not the Christ. You know, if you are involved in a ministry at our church or perhaps in uh, some other Christian ministry, it's, it's so easy to believe, isn't it, that spiritual success or that spiritual failure is all in your hands, that a certain ministry depends all upon you. And sometimes thinking this way, believing this, can lead us to uh, feel crushed under the weight of such a responsibility. It can quickly lead to burnout and discouragement. You know, I regularly have to remind myself, I am not the Christ. Parents and, and grandparents, uh, you know that we feel the responsibility to our children, right? We feel responsibility toward them in the eyes of the Lord to pray for them and, and to teach them the ways of the Lord. But uh, we, in this calling, are not going to be able to do it perfectly. We are going to make mistakes. We have made mistakes. Uh, we're going to have regrets. Uh, we're not perfect. Kids, uh, your parents have probably apologized to you at one point or another for making a mistake in their parenting. We're not perfect. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. There is only one Christ, and that is the Lord Jesus. And praise God, loved ones, praise God that the world is upon his shoulders and not upon our shoulders. Praise God that our salvation rests not upon us, but it rests upon him and him alone. And we know that in his hands it is perfectly placed because he is sovereign 
and he cares for us, and he loves us. And so the investigative team here continued. We see their interrogation. We read in verses 21 through 24, they asked John, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. We see in our text that the investigators went through a number of of figures who were associated in the Bible with the end times, with the coming day of the Lord. When they asked if he was Elijah, uh, this is because of the prophecy that we read in Malachi chapter 4, the prophecy that God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And to this question, John says, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah. Now, it's interesting if we think about it, that this was John's response. He's not Elijah. But Jesus will later identify John the Baptist as the promised Elijah-like herald of the Messiah. But John the Baptist never claimed that uh, for himself. He never made that connection. We see even here he refuses to make it, to, to take such honor for himself. See, Jesus clearly explains about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 and 14. He says of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He is Elijah. Jesus said this of him, but John's attitude about himself revealed his humility. He did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. And so if not the Christ, if uh, not Elijah, then the question was, well, are you the prophets? What they were getting at, loved ones, is that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses speaking to the second generation of Israelites that are about to enter into the wilderness or into the promised land. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 the promise that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the promise that they were wondering. Are you then that prophet that uh, Moses uh, spoke of? the one who was to continue Moses' ministry among Israelites. John answered, no, I am not that prophet. Instead, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, or clear the way for the Lord's coming, for his arrival. Here's John saying, I am the one heralding the arrival of the true Christ. John says, I am the one who is announcing that the Lord has come. What's interesting is that all the names, as we think about this 
delegation that was sent from Jerusalem. All the names and the titles that they asked John about and trying to figure out who he was, all the names and the titles that they put forth revealed that their hope was merely in a human figure. It was in a figure who would, they believed, lead them in victory, a victory that in reality was more political than it was spiritual. The Israelites in Jesus' day, they longed to once again have Jerusalem as the place of worship, to own the city again, not to be uh, overseen and, and overpowered by the Romans. And so they longed for political freedom, and their hope was in one who would come to lead them in that kind of freedom. Even their understanding of the Christ was that he would be more like a military leader who would uh, lead them from under the occupation of the Romans, just as Moses had led Israel in freedom from the Egyptians. See, they thought, this delegation, they thought, you know, if we can, if we can just get the right guy in office, in leadership, then we'll be free. They didn't realize the greater problem, the greatest problem, was their sin. And so what they needed, what we need, is someone to deal with our sin first. And so I want to ask you this morning, loved ones, in whom is your hope? When you begin your morning, do you find greater comfort in who our president is or who our governor is than in who Jesus is? Mark Johnston, he he writes and says, when it comes to looking for deliverance, the hopes of every generation are set too low. For many, the hope is of economic deliverance, achieved by just a little more prosperity. For others, it is social, political, or merely psychological deliverance, something to make life in this world a little more bearable. But the gospel makes us think again as to the real nature of our need. See, in essence, our need is spiritual. It's the problem of a sinful heart. What we need is the salvation that can deal with sin and all of its ramifications. To realize this forces us to think again as to who or what can save us. See, friends, we, uh, we cast our votes. We are involved in our communities and in the political process. We work hard as unto the Lord. But we are to always know that our ultimate hope is not in man. It's not in government or in charismatic leaders. Our hope is ultimately in Christ. In Christ who has solved our greatest problem, the problem of sin, and who we know is now leading us in our pilgrimage through this life and toward glory. And thirdly, we see in John the Baptist a humility that must characterize all true believers, a humility that must characterize us all. We read in verses 25 through 27 of our passage, they asked him then, why are you baptizing? 
If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now John says, in essence, I am, I am a nobody compared with the one to whom I am bearing witness. I, he says, I am not even worthy to untry, untie the strap of his sandals. Now, you might ask yourself, why, why did John use uh, this specific um, picture of, of untying the sandals of somebody? Why this specific example? Well, in the ancient world, um, rabbis usually had disciples uh, who followed them in order to learn from them. We see this with Jesus and his 12 disciples. John the Baptist even had disciples who followed him around in order to uh, learn from him. And there was an expectation that the disciples would care for their rabbi uh, by doing all sorts of menial tasks to help free up their rabbi so that he could focus on, on teaching and on developing his own uh, knowledge. You, know, you might think about the karate kid, right? How he had to wax the cars and paint the fence, right? These menial tasks that the disciples had to do. But there seems to have been a limit to what they were required to do because there's a rabbinic saying that dates to after the time of Jesus, but there's good reason to think that it was still reflective of this time in the first century in Jesus' day. The saying went like this, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, for his rabbi, except the loosing of his sandal strap. This seems to have been an action that was too degrading, too humiliating for even a disciple to do for his rabbi. That's why John the Baptist, he says, there, there is one here among us. He's already in the world who is greater than Elijah. He's greater than Moses. He is so great, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. And we might say, John must have had some self-esteem issues if he felt so poorly about himself. The loved ones, he didn't have self-esteem issues. He just esteemed Christ more than himself, more than anyone else. He, in essence, had a right view. He had a right understanding of Jesus. Well, the good news about this, loved ones, is that when we have a right view of Jesus and we humble ourselves before him, as John the Baptist did, we humble ourselves before him, he has promised to exalt us in the eyes of God. I want to remind you what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven 
is greater than he. And this, Jesus was referring to the fact that you and I experience the blessings of the new covenant. And so, loved ones, do you want to be great? Children, do you want to do great things with your lives? Then I exhort you, and I exhort myself to spend our lives in service to making Christ great, to humble ourselves in his sight in order that he, in his time and according to his will and according to his way, that he will lift us up. He has promised that if we spend our lives to glorify him here on earth, making much of him here on earth, that when we are with him in glory, we will there behold the face of God. We will experience lasting and eternal joys, loved ones, that come from being in his presence. When we make much of him, he exalts us. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be all glory through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know that in and of ourselves, we are not worthy. We fall short in so many ways. Yet we thank you that you have called each of us to life and into your marvelous light. And you have given us gifts and graces, ministries and opportunities. Help us, we pray, to be faithful in doing what you have called us to do, to be faithful in pointing our children and grandchildren to Christ, to be faithful in serving in areas of influence that you have placed us in, to cry out in this wilderness of sin about Christ's finished work of redemption and the salvation that is given to all who call upon his name. Help us, we pray, to bear witness, O Lord to be salt and light, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.